The snow is falling, the nights come early, and you're listening to Burning Rock Radio. Burning Rock Radio is the ongoing story of Ivy Romeo's search for her friend Sam. If you're new to the podcast, we suggest that you listen from the beginning. Chapter 33. He lived where dreams were sown. July 2002. You guys can stay here if you want, I said. Meet my family, I guess. Uh, We've already met them, Crown said. They've been here for like three days. Your mom took us all out to pizza last night. Great, I nodded. Okay. Well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow, then. Yeah, Crown said. Oh, and Sam wanted me to tell you that he would be back later tonight. He uh, pirated the latest episode of Everwood, so you guys can watch it together. I smiled at that. Crown and Lana left the room, and a moment later, my mother appeared in the doorway. The second I saw her face, framed by a great new haircut looking around the room with an expectant smile. I couldn't help but feel a cold wave wash over me. She was going to ask so many questions about what had happened, and I had never been a good liar when it came to her. June followed immediately, almost regal in her bearing, if trendy and casual in every other way. She had gone off to New York and come back even cooler than when we were kids. How are you feeling? Mom asked, voice softer than necessary. It was calm, deceptively calm. Not too bad, I said. It was kind of a lie, but since none of my symptoms were particularly concerning, I didn't want to worry her by mentioning the headache or the slightly crushed sensation my spine was giving off. I could really use a coffee, though, I said. I'll ask a nurse. Mom replied. It worked exactly as I hoped it would, and Mom disappeared into the hallway, leaving me and June alone. June came over and stood next to my bed. She handed me a My Little Pony. I looked up at her, trying to figure out what this was about. Her face was utterly unreadable, as it tends to be. I looked down at the toy. The little lavender horse had a dark purple ivy-shaped marking on her hip and a mane of pink and purple. I turned it over in my hands. You know, she's the glamorous one, June said, putting the horse back on the nightstand. What? I asked. Yeah, all the websites say it. I looked her up when Mom bought her for you. She tilted her head at me like she was evaluating my reactions. There was something off. I could immediately tell that something was wrong. Well, I wouldn't call my life particularly glamorous, I said, raising my casted arm slightly. What's up? You look strange. Well, this is just my face, I guess, she said. She perched on the air mattress. I found it funny that the little bed had basically become a day couch for all of my friends. After a moment, though, she spoke up. Your friend, Sam. He let something slip before he thought better of it. I waited for what she was going to say next. 
Did he say something about the monsters? Or the teleportation thing? I would literally kill him. He said you guys did a ghost hunt last week. I sighed in relief. She had no idea. She was worried about ghost hunting when I had hit Cthulhu with my car. I understood, though. I understood why she was upset. Mom and the grandparents had sent her away for the same thing, and maybe it was insensitive of me to engage in it at all. Maybe I should have warned my friends not to talk about it. Then again, I really couldn't have seen any of this coming. Man, yeah, it was dumb, I said. But it was just it was just goofy, like a fortune teller at the fair, you know? We sat there in silence for a few seconds. Things between us never used to be weird. We used to talk about everything, fight about everything, and never have to wonder where our relationship stood. Somewhere along the way, though, things had shifted in subtle ways that I hardly noticed at first. So you've been here for a few days? I said. Yeah, I met your friends. They're all right. Lana and Kyle and Sam, she said. We all had pizza at this horrible little joint at the end of town. Kyle? I said. It took me a moment to remember that Kyle was actually Crown's first name. Somehow the use of his first name actually sounded incredibly formal in this situation. Well, so how long are you staying? I asked. I have to get back to New York by Thursday, she said. So, you know, would have been nice if you could have woken up from your coma a little earlier. Well, maybe you can, like, come back. Stay in my apartment for a week or something? I realized that I was starting to sound kind of desperate, I think. I quickly changed gears. You know. If Amelia ever gets wise and kicks you out of your place. June smirked. Mom and June stayed for another half an hour. And when Mom started asking questions in earnest, I feigned being super tired and she eventually got the hint and left. The funny part was that by the time she left, I actually did feel tired. I closed my eyes and laid back on the stiff sheets. The dreaming began immediately, but... It was something different this time. I knew for a fact that I was dreaming. Other people talk about being able to tell that you're dreaming. They even talk about being able to control their dreams, like they're some kind of freaking sorcerer. I've never been able to do either of those things. But that night was different. I'm standing at the end of a long corridor, and at the far end there's a window, and framed in that window I see the ocean. It stretches endlessly in every direction but one. To the west, there's a city rising up out of the water like a modern-day Atlantis. I can't believe I haven't noticed it before. After all, hasn't it always been there, just outside my soul window? Then there's a knock. I look around, trying to figure out what exactly is being knocked on. It takes me a minute to find the second window. It's at the other end of the hall, and it isn't a normal window. It's a stained glass window with a ton of purple and a smattering of snowflakes. There's a bow and arrow in the center, and the whole thing is backlit by something. 
The window frame and windowsill look like they're made out of copper. The edges are beginning to patina, taking on that pale green moldy look. I wonder how long this window has existed here in my dreams. Is it as old as me? Older? I push the window up and lift my leg over the sill, pulling myself outside. I expected it to be daytime out here, given the fact that I had clearly seen sunlight pouring in the window. Instead, I find that I'm stepping into a starlit room with no roof and an ocean beneath the glass floor. I take a step backward, retreating to the hall to look through the window again. Sure enough, bright sunlight pours through them, staining the old rug with color and light. I even catch a glimpse of a meadow and a brook through the clear parts of the window, not to mention the view of the ocean from the far end of the room. I decide that these windows must be simply looking out into another dream dimension and step through the door again. Someone had been knocking. I've almost forgotten that part, and I almost forget it again as I survey the room in front of me. I'm not really sure if I should think of it as a room, actually. It's more like half a room. Half castle ruins with the sky exposed overhead. The stars are unlike anything I've seen on Earth. For one thing, they're big enough to have a shape. Each looks like an elongated diamond with four points and a burning white center. Instead of blinding me like sunlight, though, these stars glow with a luminosity closer to the moon. I once went to a jeweler with my mom when I was a kid, and the guy behind the counter asked if I wanted to see something cool. Being a 12-year-old, I immediately agreed. Of course I wanted to see something cool. He brought me behind the counter where he set out a black velvet pad. Then he unlocked one of the cabinets, removed a sky-blue pouch, and poured the contents onto the black velvet. I still remember the twinkling sound of dozens of sapphires as they spilled onto the fabric. That was the day that I learned that sapphires are not only blue. They come in a whole rainbow of colors, and each of those colors comes in different shades, and the different shades come in different intensities. At the time, I thought it was a pointless piece of trivia that I would never use again. But as I stand there under those oversized stars, I see that they were reflecting back the colors of those sapphires. Each star is tinged with one of the colors. They remind me of the lightsabers from Star Wars, white in the center, but giving off various colors around the edges. I stare at them for a long moment before remembering for the second time that someone has knocked on the door. Someone out there wants to come in, or maybe they want me to come out. The air is warm, and the breeze that filters through the missing ceilings and the windows feels like the air when you roll down your window on a hot day. I can smell something like cinnamon and sweet peas blended together, and when I look off into the distance... I think I can see the hulking outline of a forest. I'm about to say something, to call out and hope that whoever knocked on my door will answer me, when I see a shape of a silhouette against one of the windows. It's a human shape and one that looks somehow familiar. 
I know immediately not to be afraid. Hi, I say, stepping up to the window. The person turns to look at me, and I'm not even slightly surprised to see that it's Crown. Hi, he says. Are you really here? I guess the only way either of us will be able to tell who's real and who isn't is when we compare notes tomorrow, he says with a grin that is almost enough to convince me of his authenticity on the spot. I don't think I could remember it in enough detail for that. Was that you knocking? I ask. I thought about knocking, he says, which might be the same thing as knocking around here. Neither one of us says anything for a moment. This is completely new ground, and I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable sharing headspace with someone. I know Crown a bit, but not quite well enough to let him in on all of my secrets and thoughts. This place is beautiful, he says eventually. Your dreams are a lot cooler than mine. How do you know this is my dream? I ask, realizing suddenly that if we are sharing a dream, it could be just as likely that I wandered over into his. Because there's no way I would ever wear a black velvet suit, he says, and pulls the pockets out of his jacket. Not even in a dream. So you aren't really here? This is just a dream, I say. I feel a mix of relief and regret. In some ways, I want everything to go back to normal, but there is a part of me that's looking for something new. There's always been a part of me straining for change, straining for the future, and superpowers would be a real change. No, I'm really here, he says, but looks like since it's your dream, you control the aesthetics, clothes, buildings, these really uncomfortable shoes. I look down at his shoes. They're so shiny that I can pick out the individual stars in them. I focus on his shoes for a moment and watch as they dissolve in front of my eyes, turning into blue converse instead. That's better, he says. When I look up again, he's wearing a lopsided crown like Jughead Jones from the Archie comics. I stifle a laugh. It's covered in all those sapphires from my childhood memory, matching the stars perfectly. Great, how original, he says, taking it off his head and putting it on the rock windowsill beside him. I'm about to suggest that we go out and explore when I hear a chime coming through from the building I had just left. I turn to look back at the house. The chiming doesn't stop. It drones on, playing the same familiar bells one after the other. I turn back to Crown. I think you're waking up, he says. I don't want to, I reply, though I'm not exactly sure why I would say that. Maybe I want to see more of this world. Maybe I'm just not ready to go back to the real world with all of its confusion and terror and uncertainty. I begin to lose control of the dream then. I'm no longer in conscious control, at least. I find my feet carrying me back toward the hall, and when I look up at Crown, he's wearing a Jedi robe and carrying a lightsaber, which is certainly not intentional on my part. What if we don't remember this in the morning? Crown said suddenly, like 
what if this happens all the time and we just don't remember because they're dreams? He's right. I've never remembered my dreams after I wake up. I can hear the music playing now. It's the song I set as a second alarm on my phone in case I slept through the first one. This world was slipping away and I wasn't going to be able to hold on to it. Tell me something snappy so I won't forget it, I say. I always remember the places from my dreams before anything else. I remember the questions. I always dream in questions, he says. He pauses only briefly before pointing out at the sky. When I was a kid, my vision was so bad I couldn't even see the light from the stars. It was all just a blur. So my parents would try to point out constellations and I would just pretend that I could see what they were talking about. First time I got glasses, it was like the sky exploded. It's a nice story, and I would have been happy to end the dream on that note. To let it float away on a song and try to hold on to that piece is my one touchstone. But first I need to give Crown a question. Something he can take back with him. A souvenir for the waking world. Will you be happy in this town for the rest of your life? when you don't know what's waiting for you out there, I say. I think the question hit him more deeply than I thought it would because he stops and he doesn't move again. My dream crumbles around him and the last thing I see are his eyes searching mine. October 2007. As Crown and I stand there with the water rushing around our feet, looking out at the ocean, I can't help but ask a question that feels like it's been in my mind forever. Are you going to stay here? I ask. Crown looks down at me and does one of the things that I hate most. Are you going to stay here? He repeats. That's what I just asked you, doofus, I say. I don't have any plans, he says after a moment. I nod, feeling better about that. Do you ever feel like we missed something, I ask? Five years ago, I mean. I think I still have nightmares where that thing comes back, he says. It's not exactly the answer I'm looking for, but in some sense, it's still comforting to hear. I still don't remember exactly what happens that night, I say. I don't know if any of us remember it perfectly, he replies. I know there are some rough spots in my memory. Extreme situations can do that for people. I nod. Mine are a little beyond rough, though. I'm missing whole sections of that night. It's as if they've been sucked right out of my brain, along with any traces of the people who would have given my memory a foothold. Crown and I stand there in the water a little longer. So, are you here to kill me? He asks after a moment. I turn, ready to deny it, ready to say that I'm not the monster, but I can tell from his expression that he already knows who I am. Maybe he had designed it, or maybe he had just guessed it. Crown knows us all too well. That wasn't my plan, I say, but I don't like snitches. He smiles. 
I'm not a snitch. Maybe you should join me then, I say. That would be cheating. Yeah. He considers this for a moment, and then he says, Maybe I will. Thank you for listening to Burning Rock Radio. Visit us at www.burningrockradio.com and follow us on Instagram at Burning Rock Radio. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. And Sam, if you're out there, we all miss you and hope to see you soon. <laughs>